Dr. Sven Usman is an archaeologist, lecturer and activist at the University of Western Australia's School of Social Sciences. I sat down with Sven to talk about the forgotten worlds beneath and all around us. Before that, I'd just like to acknowledge the country I'm on. So, Nala Karach Wajuk, Mutkan Karak, Nidja Butcher. I acknowledge the unceded Wajuk land from which I present from Burlu, otherwise known as Perth, Western Australia. Uh, where I'm based as an archaeologist at the University of Western Australia's Department of Archaeology and Centre for Rock Art Studies. I um, study archaeology and heritage in Southern Africa and Northern Australia, and also contemporary archaeology, which to many people sounds a bit like a contradiction, but it's essentially really just looking at the world around us, which is made out of materials, artefacts and things, and acknowledging that, you know, archaeology is constantly in production. Whatever you throw away today is the archaeology of tomorrow, for example. So, you know, I've, I've worked in museums and I've worked in universities and some sort of in between kinds of places in Southern Africa and in Australia and in the US as well. I grew up in sort of semi-rural South Africa and really liked being outdoors, being in the bush, those kinds of things was uh, sort of like school. My mum was a teacher. She taught me once, which is one of the more traumatic episodes in my life. Wonderful mother, but, you know, <laughs> you want to be taught by your mum. And, you know, I just take off on weekends and I loved rocks and I'd collect rocks. So this this was in, in Krugersdorp, as it was called then, Mukhali City now. And, you know, cradle of humankind, right? Or uh, actually, you know, probably like the third oldest cradle of humankind anyway. Later, I found out these rocks were mostly early Stone Age tools. I didn't know it at the time. They just sort of appealed to me. And then going to university as one of the first in my family to go to university, I didn't really know what to expect and archaeology, because of essentially Indiana Jones, seemed great. It seemed a kind of outdoor pursuit. Of course, Indiana Jones is a sort of nasty tomb robbing kind of person sort of thing. And, and it took me a while to adjust, but I, I then liked archaeology even more because it combined the outdoor with thinking about it and trying to construct some sort of narrative from the past, from these various fragments, a fairly standard kind of narrative. And I tried sort of everything. I tried excavation archaeology, Stone Age, Iron Age as we periodize these things. And it was while excavating a Bro's Cottage cave under the Mwagli on the Lesotho South Africa border that I just happened to be invited on a rock art field trip. I think the third member of the, the field team was down with alcohol poisoning and I had a first aid certificate. So I got onto the trip and the rock art really sparked with me because the, the rock art just seemed to, to say something, you know, it's much more agentive than, say, a stone tool. Well, a stone tool is probably equally as agentive. Our theory is probably the problem. But, you know, there was a story there. There was ethnography there. It was both old and it was recent. A lot of archaeology has this problem of always wanting to find the oldest, which is also the most socially distant and least meaningful from us, as opposed to the most recent. And so, you know, my, my sort of trajectory was essentially uh, I studied at Witz and after Martyrs was lucky enough to get a job at National Museum in in the rock art department. I was the head of department, which was one person, me, and later two. <laughs> but it was, you know, great. For about a decade, I stayed there and did field work all over the show. Then got invited to do a scholarship in the States. 
and studied for my, my PhD there, fought in prison for a bit, which was very interesting. Came back to South Africa to lecture at Pretoria and then down to Cape Town as the curator of archaeology at, at Ezeco. And then in 2013, moved across to Australia, where I've been working on and off since 96 uh, on top end rock art and sort of find myself now here. And, you know, some of those things were sort of semi-planned, but a lot of it just sort of happened. And you had these moments where you're like, oh, do I do this or don't I do this? Luckily, I have a very supportive partner. Whenever I was kind of like, oh, should we go to the States? You kind of go, eventually go like, of course, let's let's give it a go. You know, it's like, all right, well, let's do it. So, yeah, that's that's sort of how how it's roughly worked. And, and I've enjoyed being in, in sort of museums and universities and, and there's a few spaces in between because they give you quite a broad range of exposure. It's like being in a giant treasure chest, sort of studying both the past and the recent past and thinking about the future. I wanted to know how Sven thinks about ancient rock art and contemporary graffiti. We've got to watch out with this oldest thing. It's, it's really a kind of androcentric bias, establishing a kind of hierarchy and set of progenitors and, and all of those different kinds of things. It's part of a game, of course. If you find the oldest something or other or the oldest known to be technically accurate, then you're likely to get better funding than finding the seventh oldest something or other kind of thing. But I think we've got to work against that. If you want that whole continuum, the oldest known does have a function. It's useful to know when a practice was coming about, you know, when humans become symbolic in their outlook, all of those kinds of things. But you also want to know everything that happened in between. So, for example, when I'm up in sites in the northern Kimberley with traditional owners, there's one site we've dated, this is not rock art, but an archaeological site for 50,000 years, you know, it's published the great fanfare and everything. And the TOs, the traditional owners, their comment on it is, it's a nice place to fish, it's on a river, and that's it. Then nearby, we found another site at which there's rock art in a style known to be quite recent, and there are items, metal items from nearby farms that Aboriginal people creatively repurposed from spears and all sorts of things. And suddenly people are animated, you know, they say, oh, you know, which uncle or auntie was that? And how does this work? And how does that work? So that then sort of got me to thinking, well, you know, not actually that. What got me to think it was about 20 years ago when I was at National Museum in Bloemfontein was the centenary of the South African War, the Boer War in the old language. And I was asked to give a paper on it. And I kind of went, oh, I've got this every year in school and I'm just trying to forget the whole damn thing. I don't want to give a paper on it. But then I realized in the central interior of Southern Africa, looking at the engravings, now, different traditions, but all sorts of different traditions we now know. But there were also markings made by the soldiers during the Boer War, British and Boer soldiers. And I sort of went, oh, OK, let's have a look at those. Anyway, I presented this paper and at the end of it sort of commented to the audience, you know, is this, you know, white in the language of the time, white rock art? And was, was struck by the reaction of the audience. Some thought it was a joke and kind of laughed. And the others thought it was offensive to sort of say that, you know, the subtext kind of being, you know, sand and such like make rock art and we make art. So I got thinking about it, thinking, well, what actually is the distinction between rock art, between art, between historical markings, between graffiti? As a kind of very long story, you end up finding out 
that rock art is both ancient and recent. I was with the community two weeks ago that make hand stencils and such like still today. So it's very old and recent. And graffiti, which everyone accepts to be recent, actually goes back quite some way in time. And one of the problems, though, is defining graffiti. Graffari from the Latin, it just means a mark on a surface, usually an unauthorized mark. Susan Phillips writes very well on this. But you kind of think a little bit, and I've thought about it quite a lot, because there are a lot of things that really are historical inscriptions or markings. There are a lot of things that look like graffiti, but are highly commercial and co-opted as a subculture. And to me, it's really graffiti has some sort of spirit of resistance about it. So it's someone sort of so there can be some rock arts that are also graffiti. Now, sand, and I use that word without any pejorative connotation, sand, Bushman rock art that shows, you know, European settlers, for example, to me, you could understand that as graffiti in its resistive kinds of elements, for example, even though it looks like rock art. So it could be both rock art and graffiti. But then I kind of think, and this might sound a little bit weird, but it's again invoking kind of actor network theory, post-humanism and those things. What about graffiti itself? What does it want of us? You know, does it have an agency and even a sentience, for example? So it's it's a transgressive artifact. To me, it kind of exists to make everyone unhappy at some level. And part of our problem is it's a lack of precision in defining what graffiti is. Some people will say, well, you get gang tags. So gang tags are generally all about, you know, violence, drugs, all of those kinds of things. And then you get right through to kind of community-sanctioned murals kind of thing. And it's all under this big term graffiti. So it's a very imprecise term. So we need a lot more precision there. And that's where I think archaeology can be useful. It, in many ways, is a very colonial discipline. It's an open question as capable of decolonizing, but it's certainly using Dubois' notion of, you know, using master's tools to dismantle master's house. We're very good at typologies, at classifying, at describing, all of those things. And when you apply it to graffiti, which at first blush is this anarchic kind of artifact that's all over the show, suddenly you see, no, it's actually very ordered. There are definite types of graffiti. You can date them. You can do interviews. There are obviously ethical issues that you can do interviews with the people who've made it, the writers who've made it. And suddenly you realize, well, it's an artifact, just like rock art, just like a hand axe, you know, any of these things. And it's amenable, at least in some ways, to study by archaeology. And, and there's now been a fair bit of scholarship of graffiti in archaeology. And, you know, we like the materiality of things. You know, graffiti and rock art are, are not necessarily the same, and I don't need too many definitions, but they're both exercises in making place through marking. So you, you place marking and you place making. It's sometimes contested, it's sometimes more sort of consensual, if you like, but these are part of that world around us, and they're really interesting artifacts that we have and which you know, are not going to go away and which tell us a lot about the past, and particularly about the present and, and what we value in terms of what kinds of images and marks we value in which kinds of places. Yeah, so that's where I think the so what sort of factor is in there. How do you know, right, that something is, you know, constitutive of rock art as opposed to early graffiti? Is there a way you can tell? It's a difficult one. Like, like that example, you know, when you find some rock art and it's showing settlers in a battle or something, you might argue and, and you know, people will disagree with what I'm saying, that graffiti is just about resistance, for example. And I think that's the productivity of graffiti as an artifact. It gets people chattering and that kind of thing. But say now you go back, you know, 20,000 years. We've recently dated a macropod painting, a two-meter-high kangaroo at 17,000 years in northern Australia. 
it looks like a kangaroo, but as we know from ethnographically informed rock arts, what something looks like and what its inside story are can be very, very different things. And it's quite frightening for then archaeologists to admit, you know, very often we, we simply won't know. We need these words, rock art, stone tool, graffiti, etc., to categorize things. But even calling something a stone tool can be misleading because it stresses the economic. But people might have traveled considerable distance to get that raw material from a special place, for example. There might be ritualized ways of working that stone tool. We know there are where people see a stone tool as having a life cycle. You have the lump of rock, you bring it into being like a birth, you work it as you develop it, you haft it onto a piece of wood to make a spear or an arrow, for example. So there's a marriage of materials. It then dies. You know, these are ways that communities living today and in the recent past informed. That's how they think about these different kinds of things. So a lot of the time we just don't know and we don't deal with sort of uncertainty and absence very well. We don't tend to deal with it very well. But I have often wondered, you know, with especially the love of Banksy that we've all kind of gone through in the early 2010s, 2000s, and Banksy's response to being placed in museums and, you know, whether it was Banksy or not, we don't know. But I do think there's something quite interesting about like how we were thinking about archiving our materials. And especially now in South Africa, there's a lot of conversation about thinking around personal archives because historically what has been codified and put in museums has often been the hegemonic narrative. And I'm just curious also just about like the relationship then between museum archiving of what might be seen as transgressive or resistance art, which is precisely trying not to be institutionalized, but is speaking to the institution, how you think about it in your work in this larger conversation around rethinking the archive as beyond kind of what the state or the hegemonic narrative would like us to imagine as the legitimate archive. How do you see then graffiti in that kind of conversation? Yeah, so that's a big one. And so maybe some sort of overall framing for it and, and having worked in museums for about half of my career is that, you know, I don't think this museum community, and, and I include myself there, so it's self-criticism, but think seriously enough about the promises around archiving, curating and so forth. So generally, when you get to, you know, a standard museum, a national, whatever kind of museum or repository, They'll have a policy on collecting and such like. Or if you look at the legislation of the country around heritage and depositing material in the museum, you know, it generally becomes, it transforms. A, it becomes state property, usually. So that's it's quite a big thing, you know, that the state now owns that because this includes, for example, human remains. A human remains transforms from a person into an object. So that's why the whole repatriation movement is to try and rehumanize those people and restore their dignity. The second thing that happens is around time, is that generally through legislation and policies, state archives promise to keep something that comes into their collection in perpetuity. So they're saying forever. I don't know when forever ends, but it's a hell of a long time from now. And there might not even be humans around. In fact, almost certainly there will not be humans around if evolution is a valid process. So we haven't really thought about that time aspect because people are continually, you know, as we grow to now almost 8 billion people, we create more and more and more stuff. You know, contemporary archives, people are looking at COVID archives, for example, 
each day, if you work out how many, uh, I've done this for archaeology, sort of roughly, but they're roughly between 20 and 50 million tons of masks discarded each day on the planet. So that's all part of now the archaeological heritage, or you can collect it for a museum. At Ezeco, we'd often have discussions about, you know, what about collecting plastics and McDonald's wrappers and these kinds of, they're an important part of the world around us. Uh, but can we continue to collect? We've got to build buildings. We've got to have staff in an underfunded sector to have it. We can't just continually collect. Sometimes people say, well, the answer is then virtual. You know, people then say, ah, graffiti. You know, you can't really haul out a graffiti wall, but people try it with Banksy to sell, I suppose. But that lends itself to photography, photogrammetry, VR, video, all of those kinds of things. That still requires maintenance. You have to have computers, computer programs. You have to migrate those um, operating platforms every few years. You have to have skilled operators, all of those kinds of things. And then again, going back to that point, the graffiti that isn't really meant to be owned, it's a property crime. It's meant to you know, be one in the face for you know, whoever owns that property or the government or the state. Now the state has a kind of avatar or version of it. They'll display it in a very controlled space with text, either audio, visual, both. It sort of tells you what that's meant to mean and why it's good or why it's bad, which might be entirely contrary to the graffiti writer's intentions, for example. But looked at through the eyes of the graffiti itself, you might then say, well, the graffiti will probably be quite happy because it doesn't like anyone to be happy with it. So whatever the intention of the original maker is, it's going to acquire other meanings depending who the audience is. Other writers might add to it. They might, you know, the city council might go over it. So there's very much a life cycle at work there. So at best, the museum can capture something in a moment. And it generally doesn't capture a process. It captures an artifact. You know, it's a sort of synchronic diachronic kind of issue. At the same time, like Baskevart and others, a lot of graffiti writers, Keith Haring and that, Banksy, you know, they play the game. They quite like it also being in the museum. They say, well, why can't it be in a museum? It can be on a wall, it can be on a sidewalk, it can be in a museum, for example. And it's then a challenge to the museum or the, the collection as to how it then archives it. You know, getting to the, the part of the question about personal collections, people say, well, they can't last forever. Well, well, actually, the state ones can't either. Ask any, you know, collections manager about how much material gets destroyed each year just through wear and tear, not through lack of care, but just through wear and tear. So personal archives much likely resonate with, with a family, with a community, with a set of individuals, and they may or may not last for a long time. But they're important to counter those state archives. As you say, the state often, you know, goes for that, the, the so-called big man history of people's world. The castle was built by Jan van Riebeek and people kind of go, well, you know, that was a lot of work. You should have got someone to help him build it kind of thing. You know, where is the history of all the other the workers kind of in there? And do they all have to be archived in that state archive or can they be in civil society at large? Yes, they're going to kind of come and go. But here I think technology is really useful. You know, we do have hard drives and all of these different kinds of technologies now, drones, VR, all of those. Archaeology really likes its toys. And they, they can be used in a very liberatory kind of way. You know, the applications that can bring out hidden detail in rock art. Uh, people can remix these into videos, into personal histories, into artworks, into those kinds of things. So there have always been personal archives, but it would be useful to have 
some sort of connective tissue. To me, one of the key questions simply is, is what is heritage? You know, having worked in government organizations and that sometimes, you know, the so-called stupid question is not so stupid. So what is heritage? What are the different notions of heritage? There's a state-sanctioned notion of heritage, their personal notions, their community notions. And just by asking that question is really important. You know, a place might and a feeling might be important. A story your grandmother told you might be important. Whereas, you know, the million-year-old handbag People go, yeah, okay, you know, it's just a lump of stone kind of thing. So, and, you know, what is heritage is to me a really serious and fruitful question to ask. And then depending on what people say, you know, what are the challenges in capturing, disseminating that heritage? So, mm. you know, that's, I think, a big issue. Our definitions of heritage are necessarily political, revealing contestations which we live with every day. You know, archaeology is culpable here in that, you know, we have Stone Age, Iron Age, all of these things, whereas, you know, looked at another way, well, we're still in the Stone Age, you know, you've got granite kitchen tops, your computer runs off silicon, you know, all of these kinds of things. And then, you know, also in terms of language, we do need categories to kind of understand the world. There is fuzziness. It's a tricky one. Just because there's fuzziness at the boundaries doesn't mean the boundaries don't exist, but they're moving along kind of all the time. The question everyone kind of asks at some point is, you know, who am I? You know, who am I in a sort of narrow sense in my society today? And who am I, you know, cosmically? You know, how does it all work? And I think archaeology, paleoanthropology, those kinds of disciplines can be useful here. They don't have to give up their kind of scientific expertise. That's often why people look to their practitioners and such like. But they've got to realize it's not the only way of looking at the world. So sort of classic third wave feminism, for example, Haraway, others, you know, science is powerful. And it's situated, it's partial. It sees certain things in a very powerful way, but it doesn't see everything and explain everything. That allows space for all sorts of people to come into what has been claimed as a sort of academic space. Not necessarily everyone is as equal. There'd be times, you know, contextually, where someone's contribution carries more weight rather than another person's. But as a process, it can't continue without all of those people in it. Archaeologically, we struggle with, okay, so looking at human identity and ancestry through time and what are the correlates in terms of material culture, artifacts and those kinds of things. You know, you got to go, well, it's tricky now. It was tricky then. I mean, this struck me very forcefully when I was teaching a course on ancient African history in San Quentin prison in the U.S., So this was part of a Associate of Arts degree program. So it was set up to prevent prisoners going back to prison because it cost the state a lot of money. They weren't doing it out of the goodness of their heart. It was an economic decision. But then various governments sort of watered down the program. And San Quentin was one of the few places that ran on a volunteer basis. And I was over there studying at the time. And the Center for African Studies at, at Berkeley said, can you give a course on ancient African history? And I said, yeah, sure. I didn't really think. I thought, no, okay, it sounds good. And I put together paleoanthropology, history, archaeology, sociology, those sorts of things. And of course, it was a very well-subscribed class and about 40 people, which is large for these classes, most of whom were African-American, Hispanic, and there were a couple of white guys kind of thing. And so the first class, as you can imagine, you know, people are very polite, but they do say, you know, who is this white guy teaching us about African history? And I would sort of anticipated this and I said, well, you know, who here was born in Africa? And predictably, no one was. And I said, well, you know, I was born in Africa. And, and until then, I've never actually lived outside of Africa. It wasn't as a kind of like, I've got greater rights or you've got greater rights. It was just kind of people to think of these sort of nested identities uh, type of thing. And what you draw on, you know, is it a politics of land? where you know you live or you come from or you're born, is it a politics of blood? You know, my blood is my passport, as a lot of Aboriginal people might say in Australia when going to places they weren't previously allowed to. And 
But a lot of people kind of thought about, yeah, okay, interesting. And then towards the end of the 12-week course, the sort of lone, quiet, white guy, quite a conservative guy, you know, conservative is probably slightly to the right of Attila the Hun, but a nice enough guy. And he was from Wisconsin, and he said, I've always been very proud of my American identity, my German ancestry. He says, but now I'm realizing there's this African component somewhere. You know, he was still putting it together somewhere kind of back there. And then the course went on, and then it kind of went, well, you know, you're all just the product of all the mixing that went on that led to you, some of which we know and some of which we don't know. And, but there is potentially a problem around DNA testing, you know, these DNA kits and all of those kinds of things that go around and prove your ancestry. So, you know, all they can do is chart certain markers of certain places where your ancestors would be. I once had an Indigenous scholar from Aotearoa, from New Zealand, a Maori person, say, I've done the ancestry test and it's got the marker that proves my Maoriness. You said, look, that's great, but what happens if it didn't have that marker? Would that disprove an identity, whereas you identify, it's only, you know, part of your identification might be biological and part of it is cultural. And those are kind of active decisions that are, are made at various scales, the individual, of a family, you know, reinventing itself, these kinds of things, you know, so-called koi and san are well-versed in this, you know, words like coloured, uh, it's, it's all in there. And we have to all be hybrid and creolized, otherwise we'd all have, you know, died of you know, all sorts of congenital type diseases and things. It's interesting, again, to think in the future, what will everyone look like? What will everyone identify as? What will their biology say they are? So again, there's all of that process that's already there literally within your body and in your social world that's around you. Another comment is, you know, often the creolization is seen as a biological process. You get people from different groups, however defined, intermarrying, having children, all of those kinds of things. But I often think of, you know, knowledge that it's very likely that sand in southern Africa, the first black farmers moving in from sort of central Africa, archaeology says, right, we can prove the farmers were there because we've got this pottery at this state, two and a half thousand generally is given as one of the older dates. But people would have heard things through their various chains of uh, communication, of networks and that a long time before. And it's really, the, I suppose, the thing about so-called creolization or whatever cognate word you use is you probably don't think about who you are and who your family is and that all that much until you come into contact with another group kind of thing. And then, you know, you've got to kind of say, okay, so who are they? In order to understand who they are, I need to kind of solidify, I need to explain who I am and who I'm not kind of thing. And, you know, people do that from time to time, all the time. This is what an informed and skillful citizenry does. And I think in Southern Africa, probably more informed and skillful than in a lot of other places in the world. And other places of the world, the so-called marginal people are actually more skilled in this. And this is, I think, the future, the way the world is going increasingly urban, increasingly sort of fluid is you know, the, the old sort of norms and things and museums and dominant groups, you know, are going to fade away. And I think we're going to see quite a sea change in who's coming. But what exactly the shape of that new who is, it's hard to predict. And that's exactly the point. You know, it's, it's good because if it was easy to predict, governments would probably act against it. Kind of thing. <laughs>